We turn again to the first letter of the Apostle Peter, page 1219 in the Church Bibles. We read the first chapter, the first nine verses of this first letter of Peter. First Peter chapter 1 verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If this morning's title was This is Conversion, then tonight's title would be, And This Is Salvation. What did we see this morning, if you were here this morning? We saw Ruth clinging on to Naomi, and we saw particularly those words of Ruth, Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. And we saw there a blueprint, a model, a pattern for what conversion to God is. It's all those things. What we have tonight in verses 8 and 9 is the blueprint for our salvation or what we might perhaps call more accurately, what we have here is the normal Christian experience of salvation. Now why do I say experience of salvation? Because here in verse 9, if you look at verse 9 with me, Peter 
talks about believers obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And what you and I need to have in our minds is that big, full, biblical, past, present, and future understanding of what salvation is. Now, just to explain that a little more, you'll remember that back in verse 5, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, Peter talks about a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What does he mean? He means that you and I are not yet fully saved. There is a future dimension to salvation. There is a not yet to salvation. And oh boy, aren't we glad that salvation has an aspect that we don't yet have. Otherwise, this would be as good as it gets. And if this is as good as it gets, we, I think, are to be pitied rather more than all people across the face of the earth. If this life we have now is the high point of all our eternal experience, we would be rather unhappy people, wouldn't we? Yes, but there is a future aspect of salvation that lies ahead. There's that inheritance, that glorious inheritance kept in heaven for us. And one day it's going to be given to us. When the Lord Jesus returns, when the dead are raised, when there's a new heaven and a new earth, and when we see Jesus Christ face to face and we are like him and we rejoice fully in him. But here's my point tonight, and here's Peter's point. Peter, in verses 8 and 9, is definitely talking about a present experience of salvation. And not only that, Peter is talking about a normal as well as a present experience of salvation. Did you hear what I just said? A normal experience. A usual experience. A common experience. Maybe that causes you to raise your eyebrows. Especially when you look at the second part of verse 8, the last part of verse 8, where Peter uses those words, joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And I'm bound to ask you a question. Is that your experience? Is that where you are? Does that describe your Christian life? Joy unspeakable, joy inexpressible, and filled with glory? I don't want to answer that straight away. But I want to ask the question, who's Peter writing to? Is he writing to peculiarly exalted believers who are right up there on the highest platform of spiritual Christian experience? Is he talking to people who have somehow reached that great pinnacle far beyond anybody else? I don't think he is, is he? Who's he writing to? He's writing to scattered believers in five Roman provinces in what is today called Turkey. And they don't seem to be anybody special, anybody unusual. They are common believers, but they know something of these blessings that are mentioned in verses 8 and verse 9. And my question would be, if they know these experiences, 
then why should you and I be disqualified from knowing them ourselves? We'll come back to that question maybe later today, maybe even next time. But I want, for now, to look particularly at verse 8 and to see, and to see what is the present experience of Christian salvation. What should you and I, if we're Christians, know something of if we are the Lord's? What did these believers know, clearly, because Peter says they do, and what do we know? What should we know? And there are three. We may only have time to cover two tonight. I don't want to go on too long tonight. I, I went on much longer this morning than I thought I intended to, and uh, that's, that was me losing track of time. Anyway. Let's start this evening with the first of these, which is love. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen Jesus, Peter says, you love him. Now think about who's writing this. Peter. Peter's writing as somebody who has seen Jesus. Has seen Jesus many times. And although there was no photography in those days, though there were no 35mm cameras, though there were no instant cameras, though there were no mobile phones with cameras attached to them and all that kind of thing, if you said to Peter, Peter, do you remember the face of Jesus? He would say, oh yes, I remember Jesus. He was about this tall and this wide, had this shaped face, these coloured eyes and all the rest of it. From the first time that Jesus called Peter by the Sea of Galilee in his fishing boat with a miraculous catch of fish. All the way through to the end of Jesus' ministry to another episode by the Sea of Galilee to another fishing boat and another great catch of fish. Through all of that Peter would remember the face of Jesus. Peter had indelible visual memories of Jesus. And as Peter recalled the face of Jesus, he loved Jesus. Peter loved Jesus. He was asked that very question, wasn't he? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, he says, from the heart, you know that I love you. But Peter's writing to people now who have never seen the face of Jesus. And they had no way of knowing what Jesus looked like. And Peter and the apostles hadn't taken little sketches of Jesus and said, by the way, he looked like this. Here's a picture of Jesus. Peter, pin up on your fridges or on your notice boards and you can look at him. That's not the New Testament way. No. But these people, though they had not seen Jesus, they loved him. And the, indeed the verb in verse 8 implies they loved him and they went on loving him continually. Let me ask you a question. Can we love someone we've never seen? Can you love someone you've never seen? Doesn't, doesn't not seeing someone make it harder for us to love them? I don't think so necessarily. Maybe you and I have heard about members of our family, grandparents, great-grandparents, who maybe died before we were born. Or when we were very, very small. Certainly in my case, I lost two grandmothers when I was a very, very small child. I don't remember either of them. But I, you hear things about family members and you, you've never known them, but you, you love them. 
you, you, you love what you hear about them. You, you see photographs, you hear stories, and you love them. Or, or, or maybe you can love characters from history, from long ago, and you read about them, and you, you love them. You say, I, I love that person, what I know about that person. Or even fictional characters. You read, you read a book. You read a book about people from years ago or in a, in a fictional novel, and you love those characters. You really do love them. But is that what Peter means here? Though you've not seen Jesus, you, you love the idea of him. You love the reports of him. You love the, the association of him. You love the, the memory of him. You love the, the stories about him. Is that what Peter means? Now, it's possible for us to hear the gospel narratives about Jesus or listen to the Sermon on the Mount and we can love the teachings of Jesus. We can love the actions of Jesus. We can love the stories of Jesus. We can even love the righteous character of Jesus and say, wow, what an amazing man Jesus was. But is this what Peter means to love Jesus, do you think? Is that what he means? We might hear about the amazing loving actions of Mahatma Gandhi or, or Martin Luther King. But that doesn't mean that we love them. We don't spend time in fellowship with them, in communion with them, in relationship with them. We have no relational engagement with those people. Now understand this. When Peter says to these early Christians, though you have not seen Jesus, you love him, he means... They love him as a familiar friend. They loved him as someone with whom they had a real, living, present, ongoing, vibrant, personal relationship. When they heard the name of Jesus, like John Newton, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds, their hearts moved with one who was shepherd, brother, friend, Lord, Savior, my all, all the things that John Newton says. When they heard of Jesus, their hearts warmed with a personal love, personal joy, personal familiarity. Jesus was their present tense, brother, friend, Lord, Savior. When they prayed, they addressed Jesus as one who was with them, as one with whom they enjoyed sincere intimacy, as they may talk to their, their spouse or their parent or their sibling or their child in the immediate presence. And maybe for some of you, it's certainly the case for me, that I go back in my years to my earliest days as a, as a newborn Christian and I wonder whether some of these are newborn Christians, baby Christians that Peter's writing to. Maybe they are. Some say Peter's writing for those who are to be baptized. It may be true, it may not be true. We don't know for sure. But maybe some of these were in their first flush of love. The first rays of newborn love for Jesus Christ. I can remember a time when everything was new and exciting. It was like uh, the dawn breaking after a long dark night. And we had a passion and a knowledge and a love for Jesus that if we're quite honest, 30 years or so on is not 
as it used to be. And we remember the Lord himself writing to the church in Ephesus and saying, I have this against you, that you have forsaken your first love. And is that true for you, perhaps? And what we need is to be reacquainted with, reintroduced to, or in some cases we need to really meet for the first time Jesus, not as a historical figure in the pages of an old book, not as somebody who our our parents know or our friends know, but somebody we really know, we really love, we really pray to, we really talk to, we really know and love and have fellowship with. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And I will just say again, as I said this morning, we don't love him and then he loves us back. We are not saved by our love for Jesus. Jesus does not come closer to us because we first love him. We love him because he first loved us. We love him because we see that amazing love in who he is and what he does in his actions for us. And that's what warmed the hearts of these early believers that Peter is writing to. But let's go on to the second thing that Peter mentions, which is faith. There's love and there's faith. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. You believe in him. So the question might be asked then, how do we rekindle this love? How do I rediscover this love for Jesus? And I'm quite certain that Peter is answering that question here. He goes from love and he goes to faith. It's faith. Now what is this faith all about? We could translate the words of Peter here in verse 8, though you Though you do not now see him, you believe into him. That's the meaning of the Greek, the word ice. You believe into Jesus. I've yet to come across a Bible translation that actually says here, you believe into him. It would be a daring translator who would write that down, but that would be the right thing to say. And think of it like that. Let me ask you tonight... Think through, meditate on, turn this phrase over in your minds when you're thinking about what you believe, who you believe, how you believe. Don't say just, I believe in Jesus. Start saying, I believe into Jesus. You might think, well, what does that actually mean? Well, let me explain. When people say they believe in someone, they usually mean that they believe in that person's existence. If someone says to you at work or at school, well, I believe in God, what do they mean? Well, I believe that there is a God. But if we say, I believe into Jesus, we may not say it to our friends without some puzzled looks, but we should try and understand it for ourselves. It's a far, far stronger statement than to say that we simply believe that a man called Jesus once walked the earth, that a man called Jesus once died and rose again, uh, that this man is the Son of God. I, I'll tell you this, I, before I became a Christian, if you'd asked me in my mid-teens, Paul, do you believe 
everything written in the Bible about Jesus to be true? I would have said, yes, I do. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? I would have said, yes, I do. Did that make me a Christian then? No, it did not. I was far from the Lord. I was far from the Lord. I may have believed the facts. I may have taken them on trust as being true as they are. But I did not believe into this Jesus Christ. You can believe the facts and still not be a Christian. Now what do I mean by believing into Jesus? I mean that we place all our confidence, all our trust, all our hope, all our expectation for life and for eternity into that one man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let me give one or two illustrations, which I think are very helpful. Older preachers from a different generation would talk about faith like this. They would talk about faith being a rolling of the soul onto Jesus. A rolling of the soul onto Jesus. Now you imagine this situation. For some reason you are out one night on a bleak, steep, barren mountainside. It's dark, it's cold, it's wet. You're 3,000 feet up above sea level and you need somewhere to stay for the night where you can rest your body, confident that you'll still be there when you wake up in the morning. And you look for various places and you find nothing. You think, well, that won't be any good. If I try and lie down there, I'll just slip down the mountainside and I'll roll down and I'll be, I'll be finished. I can't lie there, I'm, I'm exposed, it's dangerous. Until eventually you find a comfortable, strong, safe ledge in the mountainside. It's sheltered from the strong wind. It's about ten feet wide. It's got a kind of wedge around the edge of it, a lip. It'll stop you rolling off. It's grassy, it's comfortable, it's dry. There's no wind there, there's no rain there. And you think to yourself, well, I can't get down tonight, but I'm going to stay there for the night. I can roll my body onto that ledge and I will be safe. And that's what you do. You trust it. That will hold my weight. That's what it is to believe into Jesus Christ. It's the only place where you can say, as David says in Psalm 4 verse 8, in peace. I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I find this only in Jesus. I can lie there. I can roll my soul onto him. He'll keep me. I'll take maybe the better known example of John Payton. John Payton, the Scottish missionary to the New Hebrides in the 19th century and uh, down in the Pacific, the South Pacific Ocean. And he was trying to translate the Bible for these islanders. And he wanted to try and translate the word faith for them into their language. And uh, he found a chair 
and he, and he sat down in the chair and he said, well, what word do you use to describe what I'm doing now? And they told him the, word, the normal word for sitting. And he thought, well, I think I know that word quite well. And he then did this. He then, he then sat down and put all his weight back against the chair and lifted his feet up off the floor and leant entirely against that chair. So the chair was fully supporting his weight. And he said, what word would you use to describe what I'm doing now? And they gave him a brand new word, which I can't pronounce. You can find out what it is. It's in this month's Banner of Truth magazine. That's where I remember it from. And that became the word that John Payton used to describe faith. Resting our confidence and our trust entirely on Jesus Christ. Why do we do that? Why can we trust him in this way? Because we've heard the gospel message. We've heard that Jesus himself died and rose again for helpless, needy, guilty sinners who are under the wrath and the judgment of God. And when we hear this message, and it comes to us as it came to the early Christians in Thessalonica, we read there, not, not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work within you believers, in power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. When we hear that message and then we say to ourselves, he can take me, he can take my weight, Jesus can bear me, his cross is for me, even me, my sins, my guilt, my weakness. He came for me. I will roll my soul onto him. I will put all my weight back upon him. And when we hear that, we are, as Peter says here, born again to a living hope such that there is no hope anywhere else or in anyone else for now and forever. And let me say this again. What I'm talking about, what Peter's talking about here this evening, is what we call normal Christianity. This is the real thing. This is the true and genuine experience of Christian salvation. Though you have not seen him, you love him. It's not only that my mind is informed, my intellect is awakened and stirred, my heart is moved. I see he came for me, even me. He's got into me he's he's got under my skin he's he's drawn me he's he's attracted me i want to know this jesus i used to come home as a student from lectures i couldn't wait to get back to my room so i could as this sound you may think oh paul this sounds so corny but i wanted to go back and i wanted to be with jesus in my early days as a christian i want to pray with him i want to talk to him i want to open up his word and how often that Love has faded in years gone by. But that was the real thing. And this is the thing that Peter is talking about here. Though you have not seen him, you love him. You love him. 
more than you could love anyone else who you can't see for whatever reason because of who he is that he is the son of God who is able to hear our prayers and and have fellowship and friendship with us and though you do not now see him you you believe into him you roll your soul and you rest your weight of your whole being on him on Jesus Christ alone because he is able to save you and you've come to see that that he is the only savior for sin now there's such a lot there and I'm not going to carry on any further to the joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory it's just too much for me to take and for you to take tonight I think we'll wait till next week before we go on and look at that time has gone let's pray together We thank you that your word is true, Lord God. We thank you that your word is written not by men, but by the Holy Spirit through the agency of men like Peter. We thank you that your word rings true in the hearts and minds of those who are your own people. That this common salvation that Peter writes of is something that is known to us. And, O oh Lord, how we, how we would honestly confess that our love is so weak, our faith is so poor and inconsistent. Our knowledge of you is not what we wish it could be. But we remember once more that we only ever love because you first loved us. And Lord our God, we long to see a fresh sight of that love that is yours, the love of Jesus Christ in our hearts. We pray that your spirit would rekindle that flame of love in all our hearts and go on doing so, so that it would burn brightly for you. O oh Lord God, hear our prayers. Come, be with us, we ask, in our Saviour's name. Amen.